you stand, please, as Jana comes to read our scripture this morning? Ви же люди вибрані, царські священники, святий народ, які належать Богу. Ви призначені сповіщати людям про великі вчинки того, хто покликав вас із темряви гріха, у прекрасне світло своє. Колись ви не були людьми Божими, а тепер ви люди, які належать Богу. Колись ви не знали милості Божої, а зараз ви отримали її. Любі друзі, я закликаю вас як чужинців і мандрівників у цьому світі, не піддаватись бажанням тілесним, які ворогують з душею вашою. Живіть і поводьтеся серед поган, як належить. Хоч вони звинувачують вас як грішників, але згодом, побачивши діла ваші добрі, вони прославлять Бога у день пришестя Його». But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and, and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. Amen. Thank you. Maybe seated. And thank you, Yana, for reading to us in Ukrainian and English this morning. As we conclude our series on this thing we call church, and as we turn to this last text from 1 Peter 2 today, I want to begin with a story that comes from an article that I read a few weeks ago. The author of this article's name is Jonathan Jarks. He's a sports writer. He's also host of a very popular NBA television show. And he wrote this article that is much different than the normal articles he would write as a sports writer and as one who covers professional basketball. The article is called, Does My Son Know You? Fatherhood, Cancer, and What Matters Most. And actually what Jonathan Jarks is doing in this article is writing to his small group at his church just after he'd been diagnosed with a very deadly form of cancer, one of the deadliest sarcomas that a person can have. And he'd had some scans done that showed there were tumors all throughout his body. And he took a step back after that diagnosis and he said, I, I'm not sure if they'll publish this, but I want to write something completely different I want to write to my church, and I want to write to them about what matters most to me. Jonathan is married, and they have a young son named Jackson. And as he wrote this article, he said, again, to his own small group at his church, the best thing you can do for me now and in the months and years to come for my family is be so involved in my son's life that he gets tired of you as his church family. He wrote to them, I've already told some of my friends, 
When I see you in heaven, I'll only ask you one thing. Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Does my son know you? I want my son Jackson to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why you guys always invite him to your houses. Why so many of you are always at his games. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I can be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time that I have left. That means also investing in other people so that they can be there for him whenever I'm not. As I read this article, and I thought about Jonathan Jarks talking to his own church family, his own small group, in my heart I felt this sense of longing that, that our church would continue to be that kind of community, that we would continue to be the kind of place where we care about each other so much, and we're investing in each other's lives so much that what we're doing will outlive us. And it will continue to be an investment that pays off for our children and our children's children. And that we would leverage together as a church family one of the greatest strengths we have. That is our intergenerational makeup. I said this in the 830 service and I can say it here. As you look around this room, we have every generation represented. We have the opportunity here for, like my own children, experience in their church family. For our children and our teenagers to have lots of grandmas and grandpas in church. Lots of aunts and uncles. Lots of people their age and just a little bit older than them. Or their parents' age who also can invest in them. And as a community, we can continue to give each other our best. So that the future will be bright for our church. And the calling that the Lord has given us here in this community. We not only are blessed with diversity in terms of generations, but we also have lots of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds that make up our church. Many of us came from lots of different walks of life. We all have different experiences, and no matter how similar you might be to someone in this room, they are not exactly like you, and you are not exactly like them. And that makes us strong together, and it gives us the opportunity to pay forward what's happening now to those who will come behind us. I love what Peter says at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, Each and every one of us in the body of Christ in the church are like a living stone, and all of us as living stones are being built together into a spiritual house for the glory of God. The church is not the physical building. It's it's not these physical stones on the outside. The church is not a set of programs. It's not an online platform. The New Testament reminds us over and over again that we are the church. The church is the people of God. And Peter says that so beautifully here in this text, that we are the living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And everything, everything we do together as a community is for the glory of God. I love this text, and we'll get into it further here in just a moment. Just as a reminder where we've been as we close out this series today, looking at what it means to be Christ's body on earth, the church. We started in the book of Acts. We looked at the very first group of Christians who gathered together as a church in Jerusalem, and we took a look at their, their priorities 
how they prioritized the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread through the Lord's Supper, fellowship, and, and fervent seasons of prayer, how they were so committed to worship to each other. They met every day in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They had glad and sincere hearts, and they were incredibly generous. They made sure nobody in the church went without. If that meant selling property or possessions to make sure somebody was cared for, they did it. And their effectiveness was evident. Every single day they met together. The Lord was adding to their number those who were being brought from death into life, those who were being saved. And that unity that was felt in that first church, they were one in heart and mind, still serves today as the example of what the church should look like even 2,000 years later. We moved from Acts to some letters of other apostles. We started with Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he says the body has many parts, but we are one. We are one body, and only Christ is the head of this body. For that reason, because we are many parts, but we make up one body, there are no second-class members in the church because we all have a part to play, and we all submit to Christ as the head. Then we move to the Apostle John, and John said, I give you a new command, which is actually the command you heard from Christ in the beginning. Love one another. Because Jesus said, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. Then we move to James. James talked about the royal law that we follow because we follow the king of kings. The royal law in scripture is love your neighbor as yourself and do not ever show favoritism in the church because we are one in Christ Jesus. And now finally we turn to our last apostle of this series, Peter, who much like James was writing his epistle not just to one church but to a large cross-section of churches spread out all over the Mediterranean so that this letter was truly read in all different groups of people from all different walks of life to give consistent teaching again on what it means to be the church. And I think at the heart of 1 Peter is 1 Peter chapter 2 where he gives us this beautiful picture of who we are in Christ Jesus. And he gives us this this theme that is consistent throughout the letter of, of living in obedience to Christ in our word and in our example so that others might actually see that we believe what we say we believe. And they might actually see in us that indeed we are Christ's disciples. And a brilliant thing that Peter does throughout this letter, and we'll see this in our text today, he gives us some theological concept idea like almost like a doctrine on the one hand and then he follows it up immediately with this is now how we should put this into practice here's the important thing you should believe but now that we've established this here's what we should do in obedience and in response and in these four short verses of first peter chapter 2 he does just that beginning in verse 9 and today i just have two points and, and two sections of the text, one the idea, one the so what, what do we do in response? The first from verses 9 and 10 is this thought. We as the church are the people of God. 
That part is so important, I don't want you to miss it. We, as the church, are the people of God. And we're the people of God only by His grace and through His grace. Or as Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The language that Peter is using here is very significant biblically. It echoes a lot of what you'll read in Exodus and in the first five books of the Bible as God was giving the word to Moses about who you are as my people, who you're supposed to be. But it's also echoed, as we saw this morning in our Old Testament reading, by the prophets and in the periods of the kings. It's a consistent theme that God says, if I call you my people, I've chosen you, I've set you apart, and that comes with significant responsibility. But what's amazing here, as Peter writes this part of 1 Peter, he's not just writing to a group of Jewish background Christians. He's writing these words to the Gentiles. I can only imagine that some of the Jewish background Christians in the church probably took a breath for a moment when they first heard this. They know now that they're supposed to be one in Christ Jesus, but for many of them, what's echoing in their head is what they heard when they were growing up. No, only the Jews are God's people. No, only the Hebrews are God's people. No, only the people from Moses and David, they're the only ones that are God's people. And they're having to learn now this incredible broad teaching that all who come to Christ all who come to Christ and believe in his name become the children of God it's not just based on your bloodline it's not just based on your ethnicity or or what kind of home you grew up in it's based on that confession that all of us make when we give all of ourselves to Christ that Jesus is Lord and if Jesus is Lord and King, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female alike, slave and free alike, we are one in Christ Jesus. And isn't it beautiful to see Peter write this? Because we talked about last week when in Acts chapter 10, Peter was still living with some of those presuppositions in his head. God had called him to the home, home of Cornelius, the, the Gentile Roman centurion. And it was there that Peter saw the Holy Spirit was coming upon Gentiles too. And he said, now I know for sure that God does not show favoritism. Instead, to all who fear him and respect him from every nation, he gives the right to be what? Children of God. It's beautiful to see Peter write this. Unless we leave Paul out of this discussion... Paul said the same thing using some of the same language to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. He wrote in Ephesians 2, Remember that once you Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise. Doesn't that sound like what we read? You were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peter says the same thing. You, Jew and Gentile alike, you who are the body of Christ, who are the church, you are a chosen people. You are God's new covenant people. 
You've come under the covenant of his blood. And by his name, you now have your identity. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. He uses the word royal because we are sons and daughters of the king of kings. We are the royal family as the church. But he also uses the word priesthood. Why? Because of the cross. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The veil that existed in the temple between the people and God's most holy place. When Christ was on the cross, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And a way was made open that all of us, all of us in Christ Jesus can enter his sanctuary. We can speak to him directly. Listen, we are priests. I'm not your priest. I'm your shepherd here in this church. You are a priest. I am a priest. The New Testament tells us that consistently because we can speak to God directly without a human being having to be between us. Not only can we speak to him, we can hear from him. What a shame that so often we take that for granted, that the veil has been torn. We're not just royal, we're a royal priesthood. We can hear from God, we can speak to God. And then we also have that priestly responsibility. What did the priests do for the people before Christ? They represented God to the people, just as the church has been called out to represent God to the people around us. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. The, the word that he uses here, Peter uses for nation, is actually the word ethnos. It's the word we use like when we say, go out to all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. It's, it's not a word that means so much like a physical earthly nation, which we think of with, with borders and flags and national anthems and all of that. We're citizens of that kind of nation as American citizens and others who are citizens of other countries experience that in their earthly kingdom. But the word Peter's using here is bigger than that. You are a people. You're a holy people of God. You have citizenship in your earthly kingdom, sure, and you should be good citizens there. But as the people of God, our highest calling, our highest citizenship is in heaven. And that is our home. That's where we know at some point we will finally leave this place and we'll be where we truly feel at rest. And because we are citizens as Christians in the kingdom of God, that citizenship always comes first it's always the highest priority it's what makes us set apart called out a holy nation a holy people belonging to god i love this quote from andreas he was a seventh century monk he also commentated on scripture he said when when people from different races and nations are called to abandon all their differences and to take on one mind drawing near to him by one faith and one teaching by which the soul and heart become one, they are one holy people, Jew and Gentile alike. All of our backgrounds coming together, all of our generations coming together, even when sometimes our generations don't like each other or don't see everything the same way, when we become one heart, one mind in Jesus Christ, the church takes on a soul of its own. And we are one holy people. 
coming under the name of our King, Jesus Christ. And finally, we are God's special possession. Actually, what this word means is people who belong to God for His safekeeping. We, he treasures us. He protects us. He gives us the family name. He claims us as His own. And He guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus so that we might be the most effective body of His that we can be as the church. This week, as certainly many of you noticed, has not been a good week for our convention of churches. It's already been a, a dark and evil week for many other reasons. But for our convention of churches, a moment came that we've known was coming for several years, that it was going to be demonstrated by an investigation that's been being done, that at some of the highest levels of our convention and in some of the churches in our convention, there were reports of abuse that were being made and those reports were mishandled, sinfully handled, sometimes ignored altogether. And we've had a problem for decades in our convention that many people knew about and choose they chose not to act. It's been awful to see those things come to light, but that's what the Bible tells us. That which is in darkness eventually will be exposed. It will come to light. And this is a time for a church like ours and for, for we who are a, a holy nation. We are God's treasured possession. We are his chosen people. We are royal. We are sons and daughters of the king. It's time for us to respect the family name and to bear it well. And for those who have dishonored the family name to say it out loud and to say, look, we know those things have happened, but never again under our watch, as long as we have a say in this, will these kinds of things happen. This is hard and it's difficult. And we sometimes have a tendency, I don't know if this is more of an American tendency or, or just a human tendency, but we have a tendency in our American churches to say things like, can't we just forget about the past and just focus on the gospel? Or we'll say things like, well, that didn't happen in our church. And praise the Lord, it didn't happen in our church. Or we could say things like, well, well, that happened even before I was born. So why should I have to apologize for that? Well, look at the language that, again, the scripture uses for the church. This is us. We all bear the family name. When one person dishonors the family name, it affects us all and it affects our witness. And so together as as a church representing the church, we stand up when things are wrong and we call them wrong. And we say whatever we can do to represent the family name well in the future, we will do it and we will fight until it's done. This has been hard and, and difficult. We are a convention that boasts on being built on unity and cooperation. And so we have to own this collectively and there are other areas of life where we do the same thing. We have to remember that we all represent the name of Christ and we're in this thing together. And honestly, as hard as that is sometimes when our brothers and sisters stumble, as Peter writes here, it's actually a beautiful thing because the reason God has brought us into his household and given us all the full privileges of his royal household is so that, the second part of verse 9, we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous, wonderful light. 
the ancient Christians, some of them, when they would baptize, they would say what we say. They would say we're, we're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in new life, but they would also add to it, we're being brought from darkness and into the light. We're being brought from death to life, darkness into light. It's a beautiful symbol of what unites us, that we've all repented of our sins as followers of Christ. We've given our lives to him. He's brought us from darkness into light. He's brought us from being dead in our sins and transgressions into life through the risen Christ we serve. And we, for that reason, are called to be light as we proclaim his marvelous light to every person he brings us. Once you were not a people, but now you are. You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's using the words of the prophet Hosea to speak to Jew and Gentile alike. Your identity is found in Christ. You have that identity not because you're so great, not because of where you were born, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it. You have that identity because you've received God's grace. You've received God's mercy. And because of that, listen, because of that, we are to be people who show much grace, much mercy, and much compassion to others. We don't always do a great job of that. But I ask you this question, where else besides the church is that even possible? Where else besides the church is it even possible for a person to experience a living example of the grace and mercy and compassion of God than in the church? Then, as Jesus said, that by this they will know you are my disciples again if you love each other. Where else is that even possible? I have to say again, my, I've tried during this series to compliment you all a lot how blessed I am for you to be my church family. Because there are so many times when something's going on in my life and you know about it That you send me a card you send me a note you send me encouragement. I experience that compassion and love Sometimes you do that and you don't even know if i'm struggling you just do it And it means so much in my family. They they experience the same thing here in our church I'll tell you though this happened to me recently in a way that was really meaningful and it reminded me again that if this can, this can only happen in the church. There's nowhere else that I could ever see this happening. It was back in December when my grandfather passed away. And I've talked about that quite a bit. He's still so close to my heart. He was so beloved to me. He was a father figure for much of my life. I wrote about him in the channel today. My grandfather passed away and I got so many cards and notes and kind encouragement from you all. But in addition to being the grandson during all those funeral arrangements, I was also playing the role of pastor. I was going to preach the funeral service. I was helping take care of the arrangements, putting everything together. And I was doing a pretty good job of keeping the pastor hat on, and, and the grandson hat was kind of over here, until about five minutes before the funeral. And then all of a sudden, I just couldn't push it away. The emotions were, were coming on me hardcore, and I knew that I had to step in this room, keep it together, and lead. So I was getting that emotion. I was starting to, to feel it coming, and then I noticed that I'd missed a call from my friend Rich Conrad. Many of you know Rich Conrad. I noticed that Rich had left me a three-minute-long voicemail 
This is not the first time I've had a three-minute-long voicemail from Rich. Anytime Rich sends me a long voicemail, I know he just prayed for me in that message. He prayed out loud for me. And so I thought to myself, I'm not sure I should listen to this right now. This is probably not going to help with the emotions, but I knew, I just knew that that's what I needed in that moment. It was a gift from God to have a brother and friend pray for me. I listened to the message it was beautiful it was so encouraging it was exactly what i needed but here's the amazing thing rich thought my grandpa's funeral was another day he he was just calling me as a friend and the holy spirit laid that on his heart and he prayed the perfect words that the lord gave him where else in the church can that happen nowhere else does the holy spirit bring people together like that and give us what only he can give as I mentioned, the Apostle Peter, what he does consistently in this letter, he, he starts with this heavy, deep, important belief and doctrine, but then he moves on to, so what? So how should we put this into practice? There's two points today, but don't worry. The second point is brief. It speaks for itself. It's such a beautiful reminder of who we are and who Christ has called us to be as the church as we close this series. The way we as the church live in the world speaks louder than any of our words. That's the, the, the rounding out of this text. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, as people who never quite feel comfortable in this world, as people who can quite literally say we are in this world, but we are not of it, and sometimes we feel like there's no place we fit. As foreigners, exiles, dear friends, I urge you two things. First, to abstain from those sinful desires that are waging war inside your soul. And second, to live such good, beautiful, faithful, obedient lives in view of your neighbors, in view of others, that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see the beautiful lives you live they will see your obedience they will see your good deeds and they will glorify god like living stones being built into a spiritual house for the glory of god they will glorify god and some of them might even be visited by his salvation too they might see your life the beauty in the way that you live, the way that you love each other, your faithfulness and obedience, and they might become your brothers and sisters too. Glorifying God for the way that you live. Peter was writing this to a group of people who were experiencing persecution. They were already experiencing social persecution. Many of their neighbors misunderstood their teachings. They were going around saying things like, those Christians eat each other's flesh and drink each other's blood. And, and because the, the, the church used this language of family, they had all these misconceptions about marriage and things like that in the church. So they're already dealing with misunderstandings. Then they're being persecuted by their neighbors who are dragging them into court, who are persecuting them, who, who, who are treating them wrongfully, taking their land, rejecting their business. And then you can get a sense as you read through that that state-level imperial persecution is starting to happen. In fact, just a couple of years after Peter writes this, he's going to be martyred, killed by the empire. 
because of his faith. And yet even to those who are persecuting them, Peter is saying in this chapter, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war in your soul that might even say something like strike them before they strike you and continue to live such faithful, obedient, beautiful lives in front of them that if they persecute you, it will only be because you're doing right. It will never do, be because you're doing wrong. And even when they accuse you of wrong, they won't be able to argue with who you are because they see your lives on full display. The, the example that Peter uses for this here in chapter 2 is not his own example. It's not Paul. It's not James. It's not John. It's not Jude. It's not any of the other the apostles. It's Jesus. He uses language that comes straight from the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, is a segue to next Sunday. Next Sunday, we start a new series called Summer on the Mount, which will be much different from last summer, which was a summer of kings. Do you all remember a summer of kings? Are you still reeling from that a little bit? I am. Summer on the Mount will be much different. The core of Jesus' words and such a beautiful reminder of the way Jesus lived. Well, here's what Peter says near the end of this chapter. To this kind of living, honoring everyone you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, even when they hurled their insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the cross in his body so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the good shepherd, and the overseer of your souls as we close this morning hearing this reminder what it means for us to be the church in the world even in the face of difficulty and darkness to abstain from sinful desires yes but also to live beautiful lives of obedience and Christ likeness for others to see these words remind us of the truth that through the Holy Spirit it is possible to live this way even in a hostile culture. And what culture in the world now is not hostile to the things of Christ? They all are. But we've been called to live faithfully just the same. And, and listen to me here, it doesn't matter how old you are. From the oldest person to the youngest person in the room, if you're a follower of Christ, this is your calling this is who he's called you to be. You are among his chosen people. You are a part of the royal priesthood. You are a part of this holy, set-apart people and nation. And you are God's chosen possession, valued, treasured by him. And it doesn't matter even if you say, in my life right now, I feel like my usefulness is sort of running out. I love this quote from one of my old seminary professors, Roy Fish. You never age out of shining. Doesn't matter if you're the youngest or the oldest. If you belong to Jesus Christ, 
you've been brought from darkness into light. You are the light of the world. You never age out of shining. You, brother and sister in Christ, part of the royal family of the King of Kings, you've been brought from death to life. So stop chasing the things of death and be the light and the life that Christ has called you to be. And may that be so for us as a church, as the body, that we would be faithful forever to remembering our calling as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Would you pray with me? We're going to move in just a moment to what we call our time of response or invitation. It's an opportunity for anyone today who feels like Christ is calling you to take a step of obedience. For just a moment, I want to speak to the person who has never confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're in the room, maybe you're watching online. I pray this morning that you would look to the cross. You would see what Christ has done for you and for me. That through the mercy of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, a way has been made that we can enter his sanctuary even though we are sinful. That we truly can confess our sins, repent of our sins, and experience light and life in Jesus Christ. Through his mercy and compassion, and his love for us. We can experience that salvation which makes us merciful and compassionate and loving like we've not been before. Today the calling is to become a part of his chosen people, his special possession. And also as we pray here in just a moment for all of us who have made that confession, maybe today you just need that, that reminder, you need to take that step to be light once again. If you feel like you're drowning in darkness today, to, to leave those things behind and to focus your eyes on Christ himself.